You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father in heaven, thank you that you've blessed us so much. Thank you for blessing me with a guest to speak along with me for just a couple minutes. And I pray that you be with us, be with me, grant me words to speak in the right way, and may our time be productive for you and glorify you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those two, if we were to talk about um, comparing how ministry is done here with how it is done in Central America, our conversation would not last more than 30 seconds. Why? The demographics are so different, correct? Okay. But uh, you, you have the South American division where it's also territory assigned, but Central America is just like here. Instead of one or two or three churches, they get 10 or 20 or 30 or whatever, you see? But it's still church-based. They do better because they rarely see the pastor, but the pastor's still tied to looking after the churches. And so I did, but those two divisions are demographically the same. Same kind of languages, culture, people, politics, economies, everything. Across the ocean, South Africa Indian Ocean Division has territory-based assignments. North of there, East Central Africa, that's the one I've been in and out so much. Somalia, Ethiopia, Kenya, mostly Kenya and Somalia. Though that division has it just like here, church-based. And they give them 10, 20, or 30, or whatever. And, but those divisions are demographically the same. And when I ran the numbers, you got to wait till tomorrow. I got to catch you coming back, you know. <laughs> you, you, you will be absolutely amazed. And... Uh, the cost factors, the number of this and that and the other uh, is unbelievable. And you see, when, you, when you're working with demographically identical divisions, your only factor that you're considering is the method of ministry. Okay? I had to do that. And the Lord led me somehow to, to find these things. And then I, I, I had a comparison I could do. And oh my, oh my, it was enlightening to me. Uh, it's been a journey doing all the research, I'll just tell you that. Well, anyway, let me start into the presentation and pray for me, because I, you know, I told the Lord I don't, you know, you never let me down before. But uh, I want to show you uh, a few things here. First of all, we're talking about pastors going into dark places, and that's where they need to be done best. Because it's either you leave your job, and go into places where there's no churches, or you let the pastor who's paid a salary that doesn't have to work a local job, let him go into the unentered places, which makes better sense to you. It's just basic logic. God has arranged his plan perfectly. The church members, the church elders, and so forth, they handle things locally, they evangelize locally, okay? They hold campaigns locally, they, they take care of the church itself, and sometimes they even plant a church in a town not too far away where a couple of the members live, maybe, or a little further. But then those who are paid the tithe, who can afford to move around, and they, they move around. My wife lived in 22 states. You remember that. They can go where there's not an Adventist in sight. They don't even know about them. 
this is God's perfect plan. This is the plan in which, in which uh, he can bless. And uh, I see my friend Mpenyumaji, uh, and he's from Zimbabwe, and he said he could pop in for a few minutes. Uh, if, you, if you want to come now, and then you can be free, uh, Brother Maji, just come right on up. Thank you so much for being with us. And uh, yes, I had prayed today that God would make divine appointments for me. And he knew what I needed. And so as I was saying uh, to them, I came in a door I never come in before at the specific time. And, and you know, I was, all my schedule today was different today. And so the Lord made it happen for us to meet. So your presence here is, I believe, of the Lord. So thank you for being with us. Uh, we're talking about God's plan for ministers of the church. And uh, we were talking about the plan for the elders and the local people. But the ministers are not supposed to just, as we know, just stay put in one spot, preaching to the saints every week. They already know what truth is. So Jesus said, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over every sinner that repenteth more than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. And uh, we need to re-examine that parable, correct? It needs to be done. So we're going into all the world. And, uh, and at this point, um, I'm going to have uh, Umpenyu come uh, to be with me for a few minutes. And we'll, we'll uh, participate just in a short discussion because I know that you have some other things that you want to do. And I want... How many of you would like to thank him for being with us today? Amen. So, may I call you uh, Umpenyo? Okay. This, this is on. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, Umpenyo, you are from Zimbabwe, okay? And which union, central, east, or west? Good afternoon, everyone. Um, when I left, so it's, it's kind of a difficult question, because when I left, there were three unions, but things are growing. The church is growing. Okay. So they are splitting up and people are moving into different uh, kind of structures. But yeah. there were three unions. I was from the eastern side of it. Okay, the eastern side. Okay, near Harare. That's the capital, okay? Now, how big is uh, Zimbabwe in uh, miles or kilometers uh, east to west and north to south, approximately? So they can get an idea how it compares with Michigan. Let me give you another measure of uh, that you can use as a comparison because that one is difficult for me. Okay, okay. Zimbabwe is not organized in a, if you look at the shape, it's difficult to measure it's the distance. Shape. But uh, in terms of population, right now it's around 14 million people. Okay. What's the population of Michigan? About 10 million. Okay. So it's a little more population dense than here. And I will, uh, I will pull up... Uh, just a moment. I'll pull up a picture so that you can see what he was talking about. Well, keep going. Uh, yeah. So 14 million people, and um, I should have looked a little bit about the proportion of Adventists in the country, but I didn't do that because I didn't know I was going to speak. But um, the church is um, very vibrant. And I'm going to explain one of the reasons why I think the church is vibrant. And I want to preface that by talking about how the United States is... A, I've been in the United States for about 13 years. 
I currently teach at Michigan State University. I also manage um, a partnership there between Michigan State and Stellenbosch in South Africa, Cape Town. From my experience in the U.S., there is a lot of things that the rest of the world learns from the U.S. But the U.S., on the other end, has sometimes an attitude where they don't learn from other people, they don't learn from other places, and if you look at how things are structured in the U.S., a lot of people want to come to the U.S. Maybe very few people from the U.S. want to go elsewhere. So the U.S. is the place where everyone wants to come, not everyone, but most people. And that changes how we think about places and people and attitudes. So, but what I think as someone who has lived about three decades in the African continent and 13 years in the U.S., I think the U.S. has a lot to learn from other people and from other places. One of the things that I, th I think this country can learn and by this country, I'm also really talking about the Adventist church in this country. What we can learn from, the other, from other places and other people is how to grow churches and how to have spiritual vibrance. Because right now, if you think about where the biggest proportion of Adventist population is, it's outside the U.S. Yet, the center of authority still remains firmly in the U.S., the general conference is here, and the way the dynamics work is um, we are long ways away from having an African or an Asian run the general conference as president. And it's because the authority lies here. Much of the money comes from here, and that changes how things work. But in terms of evangelism, other places in the world are doing a really good job that we can learn from. And I'm going to give an example here, which ties into this uh, seminar. Then I'll, I'll sit down. I'll take questions. No, you're fine. When I got baptized into the Adventist church in 1988, my pastor had about 15 organized churches and several other companies like... Um, establishment that we are still in the process of being organized. What it means is if a pastor has 15 organized churches, he cannot preach at all of those churches every Sabbath. Neither can he visit as frequently as like every two weeks. So as a result, church members have to take up the responsibilities that in a lot of churches here in the U.S. are done by the pastor. So in most of the churches I've been to, before I came to Michigan, I was in Madison, Wisconsin. The pastor preached almost every Sabbath, unless he had a commitment elsewhere. That never happened. All the years I lived in the Adventist church in my country, because it was not possible. So church elders and other leaders and ordinary church members would have to be on the preaching roster. And they would have to teach classes and go and do outreach ministries. Even hold campaigns. By, by necessity and hold campaigns, right? 
I'm not sure how many campaigns I did. Um, you had to do it by necessity, right? And I think because of that, there is, when I started, when I got baptized, we had to learn the baptismal manual ourselves and teach each other. When I look back, some of the interpretations we did were wrong when we interpreted certain scriptures, but it was a process of growth. And without that, we would never have grown up spiritually the way we did. And I'm not also trying to place myself at a better pedestal than anyone else. I'm just trying to describe the dynamics that make churches vibrant and that make people grow strong. Right now, I'm actually working through the book of Daniel, preparing presentations that I'm sharing with churches in Zimbabwe and elsewhere where there are no resources where people could use. And the reason is we got trained to learn the Bible by ourselves and do ministries beyond what can be done from a church-organized approach. So my point is when the pastor is always there, it's always nice. But what it does is it limits how much we are able to take up responsibilities ourselves as church members. Go preach at funerals. Right? Go and minister to families that are sick. One of my most touching experiences that I've never forgotten in life is someone sent a message. I was teaching at an Adventist school. Someone sent a message. A church member was sick, and they were asking for someone to come and pray for them. The pastor was many, many, many miles away, and he couldn't come. So another colleague with me went over, crossed the mountains to be able to go to the family that was sick. And when we got there, this person was actually dying. We held their hands and prayed for them. That experience has, ne- it has really strengthened my faith, that in his time, God sent a message before someone died, they needed for us to come and pray for them. And when we were praying, we said, God, you remember, uh, this is someone who really wishes for you to come into their lives. They might have done certain things that they can't ask for forgiveness themselves. We are taking the burden upon ourselves to ask you to forgive them and accept them in your kingdom when you come. And that ministry is always something that changes the way you think about religion, the way you think about how God intervenes in life, in people's lives. But my, I want to stop here. If you have questions, I'll take one or two questions. But my point generally is, I think we are so blessed in this country because we can pay pastors to pastor one or two or three churches. In other places where it's almost like there are no resources, someone is up to 20 churches, it might sound like that's um, an anti-resourced community, but what it does is God turns that into a blessing in the way churches are actually growing. When you go to a typical church in my country, in other countries around the world, there is more young people in the congregations, less gray-haired people. This is not to say it's wrong to have gray-haired people in the congregation. It's just to say the projection of our church 15 years from now we have more likelihood of a church when we have young people very active in the church. When all our loved and beloved gray-haired people have passed on, 
we are likely going to shut down churches and sell them off because we have no membership. And we need to think about how we keep our young people in the church and how we can do evangelism. And the way to do it is to learn from communities that are getting it right. Thank you. Oh, wait, 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 just wait. Uh, just to add into what he said, when I was doing my research, the, uh, and what I learned, it's been a number of years that I learned, about one out of nine or ten of the population in Zimbabwe are Seventh-day Adventists. And uh, in your country, when the pastor isn't there at your church, uh, tell us about how they assign the pastors. Do they assign them specifically to care for churches, or do they assign them to evangelize a region and a territory in Zimbabwe? I mean, they connect with the churches from time to time, but their major assignment is not the specific churches themselves, correct? Yes, so the, the territories are divided into, into, into districts. So a pastor is actually called a district pastor. And the district is a geographical territory. So no matter how many churches are in that territory, it's your territory. That's, this is why someone ends up having 10 organized churches, someone has 15, someone has 20. It's about the territory. So the bigger the territory or the more dense it is, the more churches you might end up having. And the other thing that happens is um, two things, actually, quickly. When churches, uh, when, when the conference assigns pastors to districts, they, the, the committee at the conference sits, and then they just say, we are sending you to this district. We, we don't interview pastors. Pastors don't go to churches to be interviewed for a position. They get sent to go work in a district. So this is a decision that is made at the conference level. Church members accept a pastor that is sent to them. The pastor goes where they are sent to go work. Because when they commit to ministry, they are committing to work for God wherever God sends them to go work. This makes a difference. The other one quick thing I want to share is when we do church elections to nominate officers, the nominating committee sits... When they are done sitting, they come to the podium on a Sabbath morning, they announce the officers, and you take up your duty. When you get baptized, that's what you sign up for. If you go back to our vows when we are getting baptized, that's what they say. When I came to the U.S., got a call to say, okay, the nominating committee is asking you to be an elder. We are asking you to consider. So that's already done because when I got baptized, that's what I committed to doing. Right? And I want to say, this is what makes a difference in how churches function and how members take ownership of the church and are accountable to each other. It makes a huge difference. I'm not saying better or worse. I'm saying this is how other people do it. And the U.S. and our church in the U.S. could learn from how other people do it. Let me repeat the question uh, because uh, this will be re- recorded. Uh, so you were asking when the pastor is assigned to a district, is, he, uh, is, is the greatest interest the growth of the whole district? Uh, he has something to do with the churches, but is, is it not so much that the entire district grow? Or that churches may be planted in unentered areas. I mean, that's that's considered kind of a norm, is it not? 
So I want to I wanna step back to be able to answer that question. The other challenge I want to throw into the congregation is if anyone here has a gold mine or a diamond mine or if you have money right, to fund all of us, I would like for us to go to Zimbabwe or to go to Zambia. Actually, Zambia is growing much faster than any other country okay. on the continent in terms of Adventist churches. So we, we could all plan a trip and spend like two months on the ground to get a sense of what's going on. So if you have a gold mine and you can fund our trips, I would like you to come speak with me afterwards. Then we can try to take a, a congregation or a delegation to kind of check this out. But to answer the question, um, when a pastor is assigned to a district, I think the most important work that they have to do is to train church members to do the work. And this training could take different kind of shapes and uh, formats. It could be doing a lot of um, um, workshops where you invite all the elders and get them prepared to do ministry in their communities. There is a lot of funerals that need to be attended. And a pastor is not able to attend 14 funerals in their district on the same weekend. So they have to rely on the elders to do this. So the pastor's work is not going to be in the, to go and say, call me when there's a funeral. <laughs> call me when there's this. They, they come to some of those funerals, but their work is to say to the elders and to the deacons, when there's a funeral, this is how we go about uh, doing a funeral service. The same thing with um, illnesses and sicknesses. When the members are sick, the elders have to go in and do the work. And the pastor's work is to prepare the elders to go and do the work. And then the elders also prepare their congregations. I think, in short, that's the pastor's work. He can preach, definitely, but his major work is to go and prepare the church to do the work in their communities. Okay, who does the baptizing? So I think our church is a policy, the Adventist church. I'm not sure whether this is in the church manual or not, but I think our church generally uh, makes baptism the responsibility of the pastor. And for the pastor to do this, then baptisms have to be organized in such a way that a pastor can come to a baptism. We, we have what are called quarterly meetings or district meetings, where all the churches in the district might come together once a quarter or no matter how often they do. And when they do that, the pastor could come over there and do the baptisms. Or churches can come together, two churches can come together one Sabbath, then the pastor comes over there and does the baptism and, um, and so on. Under very limited circumstances, I've heard of stories where elders are given the um, authority, authority to baptize, but those are exceptions. As far as I know, most of the baptisms are done by the pastors. They could also be done at camp meetings, at uh, youth gatherings, and other places, but generally the pastors do the baptisms. Thank you for on, at that question. Actually, the manual does allow for elders with the approval, etc., etc. Yes, thank you. Others? I'm serious, though, about the gold mine. If you have a gold mine... It, it will be really nice to take a delegation to come and see other places and see how things work. Uh, you know what I... Uh, yes, uh, other question? There's one over here. 
uh, I, I, I think the question that he says, uh, are there, uh, are there some, uh, with, with the pastors sometimes having 10 or 15 or more churches, and, at, is it, and the pastor is the only one out there, is that because they don't have enough money to pay enough pastors? It's a yes um, and a no. The yes part is um, this country, the U.S., there's a lot more resources. Uh, people have more money, right? Um, in other places in the world, there isn't so many of those resources. So depending on, again, our pastors get paid from the tithe that we bring into the church. So the budgets that conference offices have determine how many can be um, taken up and sent to districts. But we are also talking about, I think the other issue is the proportion between membership and the number of ministers we have. And I didn't, again, I didn't do my math before coming here. If we look at how many, mem- the, the size of the membership in the U.S. and the number of ministers we have, compare that with Zambia or Zimbabwe, we probably have more members per minister in, in, out in Zimbabwe than we have in the U.S. And because of that, that, that we end up having to, as a result of that, there's, there's more members to be ministered to than their pastors to be able to do the work. But it's a combination of those, I think. Okay. Yeah, usually the rich countries uh, have pastors to babysit the members. <laughs> and the poor countries, actually, had, it has worked to their benefit because with fewer pastors per churches, the members have to do more. Their talents improve with use. They become live. The youth take part because there's something for them to do. They get excited, uh, and uh, and the baptisms are way higher. Uh, you can have you know hundreds at a, at a single baptism, or maybe more in some cases. Yeah, baptisms are happening more frequently than they do than I've witnessed here in the U.S. We are we are constantly baptizing people, and the church is growing at a very rapid rate. But what that also does when members step up to do the work that normally gets done by the pastor is then you do better ministry in your homes. Like as a parent, if you are able to read the Bible to minister to the church, you probably should be doing a better job in your families. So that has a trickle effect in your communities as well. But again, it's, it's a blessing in disguise that pastors are fewer, members have to step up and do the work. It's the way it should be, I think. And uh, there was a question. Oh, you, you, uh, you had one more question, sir? Right, uh, right here. Yes, sir. Okay. okay, let me repeat the question just for the tape. Is it safe to say that most of the growth of the churches is because the churches are reaching out to the community themselves? Yes. And I'll give you an example to um, demonstrate that point. When I was growing up in our, in our community, we were one of very, very few Adventist families in the, in the community. I'm avoiding using the word village very deliberately because a lot of people in the U.S. think about African countries as people who live in villages. It's not, it's not true and it's not correct. Right? They are sprawling urban centers. And what I'm giving as an example applies both to a village 
an isolated village and an urban setting. So we grew up visiting our neighbors Wednesdays to say, could we come and do a prayer service in your home? So we would take up our families, neighboring families who also were Adventists, go to non-members and pray with them in their homes. Right? And when you do that over and over and over again, if there is someone who is sick in the neighborhood, they will come to you and say, can you come and offer a prayer to our, mem- to our family member? So the relationship that you develop, right now as I speak, a lot of families around my own house where I grew up have become Adventists because of the ministry that we do as neighbors. And then when the pastor comes, he's coming to baptize people that we live with in our neighborhoods who we have ministered to as ordinary members. And this is why it's important to have a pastor play his role as a minister training and preparing the church for service, not as a person who is coming to preach on Sabbath. That's not his work. His work is to prepare the church to do service wherever they find themselves. And I think it's important to, we can't ever overemphasize the the importance of preparing members to do ministry wherever they are, rather than think about the church as a pastor is limited to coming for funerals, for weddings, for baptisms, and for sermons. Uh, Let me just uh, ask one question. Uh, uh, Do you have another one? I just want to ask one question. Is it safe to say that uh, in Zimbabwe that it would be a rare occurrence for the pastor to just come to preach at one church? Let me again step back uh, to come to answer your question. I think pastors do preach. I hope I'm not putting across the uh, message that pastors don't preach, right? They do come and preach. And what normally happens is when a pastor comes to your church, it's a very special occasion that the pastor, out of the 20 churches they have, they have elected to come to your church. And if they do come, usually even if you had a preaching schedule in place, the pastor would take precedence. They will have to take the pulpit. Because if he doesn't, you won't see him again for maybe another quarter. Right? So the, the coming of the pastor is an important occasion. The same thing with the conference. Right? The conference officers are very important people. I came here last Sabbath. Um, I just came for the day today. When I came last Sabbath, um, Pastor Ron Kelly, who I adore very much, he was directing traffic out there, and I saw him again this morning, and I said, is this all you are doing here? Right? Because of the profile that pastors have in my country, you wouldn't go to a camp meeting and see the pastor doing that. Right? Because there isn't enough of them to be able to do is you'll be seeing deacons doing that. This is something that I think my country and my people can learn from the U.S., where pastors are playing the role of servant leaders. Right? He's been standing there from, did he say nine to three? I don't remember the time he gave. I don't know. You are, you are blessed to have your pastors do that work. And it's really, for me, it really warms my heart because my pastor wouldn't do that because there will be probably three or four of them at the camp meeting, and they have other important work to do. And this is really 
This is servant leadership in demonstrated. And it thus authority. allows the members to partake to, in to more. To come to the services. Right? Yeah, to participate more. Yep. So, so when the pastor comes, he is an important person, right? So that's what I'm trying to He is important because you don't see enough of him. And when the conference officers come, he, everything comes to a standstill. They are very important people. It, it's not like what happens when um, pastor um, general conference president, what's his name? Um, Ted Wilson. When he came to um, Oshkosh, Cambori last year, other people in the, they didn't even think anything had happened. Um, he came to Zimbabwe. You, might, you mentioned a lot of uh, evangelistic series happening to Zimbabwe. He came to Zimbabwe to do some evangelistic series. One of my former students sent me a message and I said, Today heaven came down. That's what he said. Because the general conference president was there in the congregation. He never got close to touch him. If he had touched him, it would be like the, the woman who's... Um, um, right? So they are important people because we don't have enough of them. There is very few of them by comparison. Now, you, you mentioned something interesting. You said at a camp meeting there, there might be three or four pastors. For the district, yes. For the district. So there's so many Adventists, they can't have like one one camp meeting for the for yeah. the conference. We can't have one conf- camp meeting for the conference. It's even for districts. Districts are doing more camp meetings per district, so there's many more members to. If we did a camp meeting for the conference, it, it would be I, I like I don't know what we would need to be able to do that. It's not possible. It's not possible it's at all. It's not possible. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the number of ministers in your particular uh, union, it could be hundreds. Oh, yeah. Okay, hundreds of ministers in a union. And even in a particular conference, you could have hundreds. Yes, and I do have a suggestion. I, wanna, I don't want to derail the lesson. I think uh, there's an important lesson to go through. I, I want to make a suggestion. Um, if you have... Um, leverage with your conference leadership, you could suggest that for your next camp meeting, invite someone from somewhere else in the world to come and speak at the camp meeting. I think Pastor Doug Bachelor is important. I, I actually am keen to, I adore him. I want to listen to his presentations this weekend. He is one of the pastors that I think is genuine to the core in our church. So I'm, I'm not... I'm not taking away anything from Pastor Doug Bachelor or anyone else, but I think the, the, the conference or our unions here, we could benefit so very much from having people from elsewhere in the world come speak at our, con- at our camp meetings and at our events. And I can suggest names. Thank you, Brother Umpenyo Maji. I was blessed. How many of you were blessed? Thank you, and, and his wife is also here with us. And uh, I, don't, I don't know your name, ma'am, but you're just Mrs. Maji, I suppose. <laughs> so thank you so much. Oh, the Lord blessed today. Oh, my gracious. Uh, you've blessed us, and, and the, the, the blessing will, will go out because it's uh, taped. And uh, thank you so much for being with us. My goodness, I, I think perhaps I should sit down now. <laughs> oh, let me, uh, 
let me just, uh, oh my goodness, what have I got here? This one I can close down. There, there we go. Let me um, bring to you something uh, to talk about the urgency of laboring with people. He mentioned to you when there would be people in the hospital, people on their deathbed, ill, and so forth, they don't call the pastor. They call the church members, the deacons, the elders. Because what he said will tie in with actually what I have here, and I didn't know what I was doing when I prepared today. But the Lord knew. And it's a personal story. Um, and uh, I call the, the message... Don't stop to say hello. Uh, in Luke, the 10th chapter, we find Jesus sending out the 70. And uh, it says, And the Lord uh, appointed other 70 also, and sent them two and two before his face into every city and place whither he himself would come. Um, <clears throat> and he said, Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves, carry neither purse, nor scrip, nor shoes, and salute no man on the way. He was sending them out without any resources. No money, no extra clothes, you know, no extra shoes, nothing. So who was going to take care of them? The target audience, the people who were not believers, were going to provide their care because they were going where there were no church members, you see. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. You know, they were, they were given food to eat, and that was their worthy of their hire, okay? And they, and they gave them lodging. Go, don't go from house to house. And into whatsoever city you enter and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you and heal the sick. Heal the sick. When they get sick or they're dying, call the local church members, okay? The deacons, the elders. And heal the sick that are therein and say unto them, the kingdom of God is nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say, even the very dust of your city, which cleaves on us, we wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. But the, the, um, the verse I want to focus on is, carry neither purse, nor script, nor shoes and salute no man by the way. When it's talking about the King James, it says salute no man by the way. I, I thought that was strange language, okay? It means basically don't stop to say hello. You know, I, here in North America you can say hi, you know, and you can keep walking. You can do that real easy in a German culture because they don't want to stop and talk to you anyway. They're, they're just very reserved. But uh, in that time, to stop and say hello was kind of like, oh, hi, how you doing? You know, how's your wife, your kids, your, your mom? Your, yeah, and I, I haven't seen you in so long, you know, we're going to have to stop and have lunch. 
you can, we can relate to that, right? But, you know, but we're supposed to be friendly, right? That's how we win souls, correct? You're supposed to be personable and caring and stuff like that. But Jesus said, go where I'm about to go and don't stop to say hello. You see, because he was sending them to a place where there were unbelievers and he was going to go there and he wanted to be able to reap the harvest when he got there. Jesus wants us to go to places where there's no church members and he doesn't want us to waste time getting there because he's coming back to earth soon and he wants something to harvest. And there's urgency in all these things, urgency. So why was Jesus so concerned with time though? The Bible says no man knows the day nor the hour when Christ is going to return. And even though Jesus was divine, he was also human. So I'm I'm not 100% certain if he knew on the earth what time he would return exactly. But God the Father certainly did. But he would have at least been familiar with the 2300-day prophecy. Amen? Okay. And just like us, we know that this is in our history from day one. We know that in 1844, the 2300 days of Daniel had had transpired, and we knew that the final judgment began at that point. And the final judgment can only end when everyone has had a chance to turn down or accept the message and thus to be judged. And that only happens when we do like they do in Zimbabwe, go pray for your neighbors. You know, the church grows rapidly over there. Like I said, it's about one out of every nine or ten people in Zimbabwe were Seventh-day Adventists. This is like a year, two or three ago or so, not so long ago. And um, it's a little bit like when um, Gehazi was saying to the prophet, the prophet was saying to Gehazi, you know, there was a lady that came to meet him and she, her son, you know, had died Okay, we know the story, right? And so she got on her animal and, and uh, her servant went ahead of her. And, and, uh, and so, gird up thy loins, take my staff in thine hand and go thy way. If thou meet any man, salute him not. And if any salute thee, answer him not again and lay my staff upon the face of the child. The prophet was going to go and pray He wasn't sure if the child was dead, but he knew that he certainly could be. And if he was alive, he could die at any moment. So he wanted to go quickly. And he wanted his servant to go ahead of him, not to say hi to anybody. And if anyone says hi to you, ignore them. Just get there. So he goes, and time was of the importance. And we know the story. The child had died, but but he was raised to life. It brings me to the point I'm going to talk about that expresses urgency. You can see that in these situations there was an urgency because souls were were imperiled. Now, as you know, I I worked as a nurse for many years. And most of it was critical care, but not all. There were several hospitals. I was like a night, time, or evening hospital supervisor. And... um, there was, uh, I was in one small hospital in Pennsylvania, and we had some, a few agency nurses we would call in from times. Those are 
those are nurses. They're not your employees, but they're giving you extra help, and they work through an agency. It's a contractual thing. And we had this uh, nurse named Bill. He was an agency nurse. I don't remember his last name, but his name, name was Bill, and he was skilled in everything. He, and he was good, he was timely, he was, he was fast, he, he, he could do anything in nursing. He was the perfect agency nurse to bring in, you could put him anywhere. But he was, he had kind of an interesting personality though. He was a preacher's, <clears throat> a preacher's son, but he didn't act like a preacher. He didn't talk like a preacher. You know, he, he was a wayward preacher's son. He was probably a, a burden, uh, you know, a, a soul burden for his mom and dad. They probably worried about him. And so one night, uh, Bill was, was uh, I don't know, he must have been agitated about something. It was getting close to, close to uh, close, you know, 11 o'clock, close to time to come, go home. And Bill, being really aggravated or agitated, he... He spoke the Lord's name with a curse word attached, and you know what I'm talking about, okay? And I thought, oh, Bill, oh. And I knew that I needed to talk to him about it because he needed to repent. He needed to confess and repent that. I didn't want Bill to, to you know, to be lost. It, it was, and, I, and, you know, I didn't really want to do it there in front of the other nurses, and I thought, I'll just catch him, uh, you know, b before he goes home right about the shift change. Well, I didn't catch him before he went home. And I thought, well, I'll catch him when he comes in tomorrow. Bill didn't come back. He was scheduled, you know, for several nights or whatever, he didn't come back. And so, <clears throat> Bill went home, and um, he, uh, he kind of stumbled when he got out of the car, and he kind of fell in his... He got a little scratch on his cheek, just a little scratch, that's all it was. He went in and in the morning, he, he looked at his face and it was a dramatic change. His skin in different areas, patches of black and skin was dead. And he had something called necrotizing fasciitis. That's, that's a, a, an unusual skin disease that can happen from a simple infection, but it spreads rapidly and it destroys the skin, okay? and it can be fatal quickly. He went to the emergency room. When they saw what it was, they got a helicopter to take him to a major medical center that wasn't too awful far away. It was that bad. You know, not every little bump or scratch is, is nothing to complain about. He was in danger of dying, so I went to go see him at that, that medical center. He was in the ICU, sedated and on a ventilator, and the the... The skin was even being eaten around his eye. You know, he was going to lose part of his eye covering. And it would probably make holes in his mouth and everything. He had it on his chest. And it was really, he didn't have a real good chance of living. He didn't really have a chance of living. Not much of a chance. And I was sweating bullets. You know why? Because I remembered in Ezekiel in Ezekiel. When I say unto the wicked, <clears throat> thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, nor speakest to warn the wicked from his wicked way to save his life, the same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Ouch. And I knew that I had failed to warn him that he needed to confess and repent. 
Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in this iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. And I prayed earnestly for Bill, not only for his sake, but for my sake. I didn't want to be deficient in my job before God and be found wanting. Well, he did survive. His face would probably never be the same again. And he, he had a clear enough mind I could go visit him. And I, I told him in a kind way that why I was there. And I don't really know what his outcome was or will be, but I knew at last God had granted me the opportunity to appeal to this young man for his soul's sake. And I don't sweat bullets anymore over it. And, and you can see that many people will go to an untimely grave without being warned that, and they could have given their hearts to Jesus if you and I were doing what we're supposed to be doing, thus allowing the ministers or the pastors to do what they're supposed to be doing. And we can warn the world quickly and go home to heaven. And there's more than 7 billion people on this earth, and almost 200 million of them die annually. And we only have about 28,000 pastors in the whole world. So friends, we've learned so much. God prepared, and I can't believe God allowed me to run into that man. And not only could he just answer a few questions, he could lead the conversation and give a total message, and he did. So let's praise God for what he has done for us today and dedicate our lives to the urgency of working for God and not put it off on the pastor. <laughs> Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have blessed so exceedingly much, so exceedingly much. Thank you so much for the, for the message that we heard from Umpenyu Maji. And Lord, be with us. May we be faithful, be found faithful in your sight with many souls because we have labored in accordance with your instructions and we have been able to free the pastors so that they can labor in areas that we can't come close to. They can instruct us, but the work is then ours. We thank you for instructing us and in leading us. We ask these things all if it be your will in Jesus' name. And the congregation said, Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.